There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on January the 29th, 2010. For the newcomers out there, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com Scroll down on the front page, bookmark all the other sites I have up for future use because sometimes the big sites go down or they stop me from uploading the, the recent shows. If you have them bookmarked, you can pull down the latest shows if this happens again. As I say, there's CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, there's CuttingThroughTheMatrix.net.us.ca, Alan Watt, CuttingThroughTheMatrix.ca, and there's CuttingThroughJenkness.com. The last one is Alan Watt Sentient, Sentinel.eu. The European site has all the same audios for download, but has addition of transcripts of a lot of the talks I've given in the past. You can download these for prints up. Choose from the various languages of Europe and pass them around to your friends. And as always, I start off with the tin can moment where I rattle the tin can to see if there's any pennies in it because I'm dependent upon you, the listeners, to support me, to keep me going. I don't take money from advertisers. I don't bring people on as guests that are often there just to sell a product. Although a lot of their news is good, but the, the end result is selling you something. The ads you hear in this show are paid by the advertisers directly to RBN for the airtime, for the staff, for the equipment, for the bills, and for the transmission. So it's up to you to keep me going. And you can do so by looking into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website, see what I have for sale there, the books, discs, and so on. Uh, or you can donate to me, it's up to you, and see how to do it. Now, personal checks are good from the U.S. to Canada. You can also use international postal money orders from the U.S. again to Canada. Got to stress international. Uh, you can use MoneyGram, Western Union. Some people just send cash, and some people order through PayPal. You can either donate through PayPal or or use it for purchasing the books. Just send a separate email if you want to purchase the books. Outside the Americas, same idea: Western Union, MoneyGram, cash or PayPal. It's up to you how you want to do it, but it's imperative you keep me going because this, is, this isn't just an hour a night. That's how people seem to think about it. I do one hour per night and I'm off playing during the day and it's nothing uh, further from the truth. This is more than a, a seven day a week uh, job. It's not a job either. It's, it's worse than a vocation. It, it's literally um, it's a drive. It's something that has to be done. It's a must be at this time in history, because those that have information and have studied this through their whole life, this whole uh, sort of mechanism of what's called the New World Order, the transition phase into the new, they have to share it, and it's time to share it with the people. And while we share it, remember too, there's a lot of disinformation getting put out there. There's a lot of good information getting put out there too by interested parties who simply want to replace the old system with the new. So be very, very careful. But uh, 
those who get the disc burned and passed to them as well, who don't like using computers, they play them on their CD players. You can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, W-A-T-T, Site 41, Box 4, Estaire, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. The postal code is P as in Peter, the number 3, E as in Elizabeth, the number 4, N as in Nora, and the number 1, P3E4N1. Reality is something I, I prattle on about quite a bit because <laughs> it's the hardest thing to find in all ages, I suppose. Ultimately, the only reality there can be is by going by your own experiences, uh, your own observations. And I'll be on about that when I come back from this break after these messages. Hi folks, I am Alan Watts and we're cutting through the matrix. Just talking about reality once more. Something that we always think we're in and we understand, but we really, really don't. Most people are born into a system. We're all born into a system, but most never really question it from birth. If they do very early on, it's crushed out of them by the, the educational system, which is really meant to standardize them and to produce a standard type that can be depended upon by the government to basically obey and go along with the basic rules and so on. And that's what education truly is for, more so today than ever, ever before. Uh, I've got so many articles, in fact, from teachers' associations in the U.S., Canada, and abroad, all complaining about the political correctness. And I've got articles, too, from their own magazines, uh, from the top, uh, telling them that their job really is, is social engineering. Uh, their job is to turn out a new generation uh, equipped to handle the social changes in the new society. In other words, they're being engineered into being politically correct to accept whatever has been decided from on high. And because our lives are so short, they really are short. As I say, you, you grow up, you, you rush off once you... They, they, they let you out of school and you get a job, you have a good time, your hormones are raging and then get stuck into the uh, the paying for debt, for rents or mortgages and then you get, before you know it, you're burned out or older and you can't be bothered participating in anything. You just, get, you just sit and watch that TV every night. That happens to millions and millions of people. The life literally can be knocked out of you. Because we're given a, a carrot to chase after. You know, the old stick in the carrot idea. It's always in front of your face, but you never get it. Uh, but you're never told that either at school. Everybody's taught that they, they can be anything they want to be if they just try hard enough. Then they give you all these examples of the multi-billionaires of the past and how they came from rags to riches. And it's always a, a, a confabulated story. There's no truth anywhere in these particular types of stories. It takes organization, organization and power, not just one person, organization to put one person in power in any particular institution, whether it's banking or whatever else it happens to be. Takeovers require power, organization and a lot of tough guys as well who help implement it. And I'm talking about ruthless people. Other people think as they get older 
that they could go back to it at a nicer or gentler time. But we really haven't had much of that. I used to think that the most uh, exciting time, really, and nicest time to be alive would be when the Americas were first opened to settlers who could get lost if they wanted to. And bureaucracies and governments hadn't uh, come in behind you so far and built all their offices and got all the rules set up and all the committees set up and church committees and all the rest of it. That's probably the only time that man's had for an awful, awful long time, those few years, to really be free and decide his own destiny. Outside of that, it's a, it's a powerful and the rich who have dictated the direction uh, that every country goes, and everybody in the country for that matter too. Other folk think it was better after World War II, and, and it wasn't so bad really considering what's happening today when at least most countries in the Western Hemisphere had industry, they made things, and every economist knows the country that actually produces the, artifact, the articles is the one that benefits financially, and it spills down, it trickles down to the workers and all the rest of it. But just prior to that, all you had to do was put up with occasional world war and, and little things like that. There really is no great time to go back to, um, except those little bits, as I say, after World War II, maybe a 20-year span where industry was still going. And Canada itself, Canada went into World War II with not so much industry. All its industry was into raw resources. We're now back to that again, of course, since we're deindustrialized. But it was one of the fastest up-and-coming industrial countries right at the end of World War II because of all the factories that had been built to get us through the war. That's all gone now, too. By deliberation, it was all sent off to China. So we're back to selling lumber and raw ore and stuff like that, a service economy. None of us participate in these decisions. Uh, we're outside of the box, really. We're, we don't know what goes on inside that box, that little room. And there's lots of little rooms where powerful guys meet and plan the future all the time. Now, of course, it's, it's up in the big think tanks, it's in the big foundations, um, like the Club of Rome who advise governments what to do and advise them on policy. In other words, they write out the policy and hand it to them, and everyone knows this is the way you're supposed to go at the top if you want to keep your job. That's the reality of the world. And we're living through a symbiosis right now of the old system where money still rules your lives because we have to obey it, you see, and those who run money can decide how much it's worth, how much it's purchasing power is worth, and they can increase the value of purchase, or they can decrease it. They can also tax us out of existence. It's a great tool for controlling whole nations, billions of people. Great tool. Only because we believe in it, of course. And that's why they put in God we trust. You know, They have their own particular deity. It's called mammon. And uh, we all believe in it. As long as that dollar gets us something back, we're, we're not too peeved, as we say. Not too peeved. Um, even when the dollar keeps buying less and less all the time. We adapt. We adapt and adapt and adapt into pretty well everything. At least a good portion of society does. The majority simply adapt into everything. And really, too, we have this vagueness about who runs our lives. There's a vagueness in, amongst the average people, not the people so much who listen to this show, but in the average people who 
maybe glance in a newspaper once in a while. Uh, all news guys know that uh, the average person looks at the photographs and the headlines. And that's all. That's about it, really. That's, that's what they go for. We're living in an audio-visual world today, so they go for the for the the talking heads on TV mainly, and that's where they get the information from. And they have no reason to to question it. Really, they don't understand it or the whys of it. They don't think to ask why. They've been trained, you see, uh, that there, that there are special people above them, a layer or maybe perhaps a whole pyramid above them of special people who are somehow brainier than they are and have, have the right to, to lead them and lead them like a good shepherd. They're, they're never ever taught that there are, there's a lot of nasty people up there running their lives along a different direction than they would ever suspect. That's what reality is. So as I say, you have to go by your own experiences and what you need to do too is to have memory. You've got to have memory to go back in your mind to all the different articles written about different changes, the up-and-coming changes that now have all passed. Uh, remember what was said at the time and, and then compare it to what's happening today. And you'll also see the same techniques, uh, if you've lived long enough, that they use over and over on the general public as they rush things through. They're going to affect all of our lives. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, too, not everyone who hammers the present system is out to hammer it because they feel there's no justice in it or that they feel it's just simply crooked. There's also very interested parties in hammering the present system so that they can replace it with their own, which is basically Marxist. Think People think that communism just went fizzle, just fizzled out one night, just fizz, and it was no longer there, just like that. Just like that, and uh, you don't have to worry about it. But remember the speech that Gorbachev made to the Politburo before he stepped down as a president of the Soviet Union. And he, he said to them, he says, uh, shortly you'll hear that communism is dead, don't believe it. And to sum it up, basically he said, we're moving into the next phase where they were to blend with the West, with the system of the West. Not quite capitalist outcome of it, not quite communist, a new socialist specialist-driven society. That's really what it was about. And we're going into that today. So the, the ones who are still very organized as Marxists are generally through academia, and uh, they've been there forever, and they're helping push this towards this goal because they have to train the up-and-coming managerial uh, force coming out of the universities. They're going to train them into the, the proper mindset to take care of the public that they'll be ruling over. That's what it's about. That's really what it's about. That's what's happening today. But the world is run by secrecy. And to those at the top, it's the only way it can possibly be run. They really believe that. When you go into the writings and the philosophies of uh, many of the, the people who advise governments and set down policy. In fact, the heads of governments run off to them for advice all the time. You'll find that they really are totalitarian in their mindsets. Some of them call themselves philosophers. Uh, some of them um, basically still teach at universities today. And uh, like Leo Strauss, for instance, he was the guy that they all ran off to 
when Bush Jr. was in for advice, and, and Leo Strauss believed the world was very simple. Uh, he loved gun smoke because in gun smoke, the, the good guys always wore the white hats, literally, and the bad guys always wore the black hats. And you just shot, you had a shootout with the, back, the bad guys, and that was it. It was very, very simple. But he also believed that in perpetual war, to bring about the utopian society, uh, the scientifically run society, you would have to go through a, a, period, a long period of perpetual war. War takes many fronts. It isn't just what we see on TV, the occasional uh, village getting blown up in Afghanistan or something. Uh, war also takes place back home. Quigley was so correct when he said that Well, I shall finish this off when I come back after these messages. Hi folks, I am Alan Watch and we're cutting through the matrix. Just mentioning that about Leo Strauss, who lectured at that MIT, I believe, and he was a mentor of a whole bunch around George Bush Jr., who believed in a form of perpetual war that the public must never be let in on what's happening. And uh, he also believed in a noble lie, uh, that they all believe in that at the top, uh, it's, it's nicer for a psychopath to call it noble It makes them feel a little bit better And they must always boost their ego But they call it the noble lie Whatever lie is is plausible enough for the public Should be used And uh, it's always for a good purpose, you see Which is, of course, whatever their agenda happens to be That's the reality of the world in which we live We're out of the picture And we are in the 21st century The 21st century And when you think about it You've still got cabals of bankers running everything, cabals of them in secrecy. Uh, one time you're called a conspiracy nut if you talk about the bankers and etc. How they run things in secrecy. Even those official history books out there to tell you how they run things in secrecy, including how even the Rothschilds, when they took over the Bank of England, made a deal with the British government and wrote it, wrote it into law that their books would never be opened. They'd never pay any taxes. And no one would have a look at what they brought in or put out. That still holds good today. What a deal, eh? It's, it's, it's good work if you can get it, eh? But um, here's an article here from Bloomberg on this topic, in fact, of bankers. The 21st century, and we've got secret cabals running whole nations. Uh, it, it says here, um, the secret banking cabal emerges from the AIG shadows by David Riley. January 29th, the idea of secret banking cabals that control the country and global economy are given amongst conspiracy theorists who stockpile ammo, bottled water and peanut butter. Uh, that's what he thinks of people who, I guess, outside of himself, who talks about conspiracy. After this week's congressional hearing into the bailout of American International Group, Inc., you have to wonder if those folks are crazy after all. Wednesday's hearings described a secretive group deploying billions of dollars to favored banks, operating with little oversight by the public or elected officials. We're talking about the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, whose role is the most influential part of the Federal Reserve System, 
apart from the matter of AIG's bailout, deserves further congressional scrutiny. The New York Fed is the hot seat in the hot seat for its decision in November 2008 to buy out for about $30 billion insurance contracts AIG sold on toxic debt securities to banks, including Goldman Sachs, Group Inc., Merrill Lynch & Company, Societe Generale, and Deutsche Bank AG. Amongst others, that decision, critics say, amounted to a backdoor bailout for the banks, which received 100 cents on the dollar for contracts that would have been worth far less had AIG been allowed to fail. That move came a few weeks after the Federal Reserve and Treasury Department propped up AIG in the wake of Lehman Brothers Holdings, Inc.'s own mid-September bankruptcy filing. And he goes on to saving the system. Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner was head of the New York Fed at the time of the AIG moves. He maintained during Wednesday's hearing that the New York Bank had to buy the insurance contracts known as credit default swaps to keep AIG from failing, which would have threatened the financial system. The hearing before the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform also focused on what many in Congress believe was the New York Fed's subsequent attempt to cover up buyout details and who benefited. By pursuing this line of inquiry, the hearing revealed some of the inner workings of the New York Fed and the outsized role it plays in banking. This insight is especially valuable given that the New York Fed is a quasi-governmental institution that isn't subject to citizens' intrusions, such as freedom of information requests, unlike the Federal Reserve. See how it's all wangled out, so that they always do everything in secrecy. This impenetrability comes in handy since the bank is the preferred vehicle for so many of the Fed's bailout programs. It's as though the New York Fed was a black ops outfit for the nation's central bank. Well, it's getting closer to it. Now, it's about Geithner's bosses. The New York Fed is one of 12 Federal Reserve banks that operate under the supervision of the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors, chaired by Ben Bernanke. Member bank presidents are appointed by nine member boards, who themselves are appointed largely by other bankers. As Representative Marcy Kaptur told Geithner at the hearing, a lot of people think that the president of the New York Fed works for the U.S. government, and that's the impression they try to give you, right? But in fact, you won't for the private banks that elected you. You work for the private banks that elected you. Private banks, that's who they work for. And yet in the New York Fed, it played an integral role in the government's bailout of banks, often received surprisingly free reign to act as it saw fit. Consider AIG, let's take Geithner at his word that a failure to resolve the insurer's default swaps would have led to financial Armageddon. Given the stakes, you might think Geithner would have coordinated actions with then-Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, yet Paulson testified that he wasn't in the loop, meaning in the know. I had no involvement at all in the payment to the counterparties, no involvement whatsoever, Paulson said. And they didn't waterboard them either. They don't get that. Bernanke's denials. Fed Chairman Bernanke also wasn't involved. Nobody's involved, you see. In a written response to questions from Representative Darrell Issa, Bernanke said he was not directly involved in negotiations with AIG's counterparty banks. Quite something, eh? What's the point of having a hearing at all? Back with more after this break.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I am Alan Watts, and we're cutting through the matrix, reading an article by Bloomberg on the Federal Reserve and the shenanigans that they got up to and still got to get up to all the time and how they keep everything so secret in this 21st century where they control trillions of dollars and we are all jumping at their whims and we all suffer for every action that they do. It's all secretive because we're so progressive in this day and age. But it says here, you have to wonder who was really in charge of our nation's financial future if AIG posed as great a threat as Geithner claimed. Questions about the New York Fed's accountability grew after Geithner on November the 24th, 2008, was named by then-President-elect Barack Obama to be Treasury Secretary. Geithner said he recused himself. That means you cut yourself off from your previous affairs. He said he recused himself from the bank's day-to-day activities, even though he never actually signed a formal letter of recusal. Same when politicians run for office, are supposed to leave all their financial dealings and stock shares and all that in the hands of, of, of a lawyer and not, not ever to discuss it with them till their term is over. But they, of course, they, 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 they do. <laughs> that left issues related to disclosures about the deal in the hands of the bank's lawyers and staff rather than a top executive. Those staffers didn't want details of the swap's purchase to become public. New York Fed staff and outside lawyers from David Polk and Wardle edited AIG communications to investors and interviewed with the Securities and Exchange Commission to shield details about the boy the buyout transactions according to a report by ISA. That the New York Fed, a quasi governmental body that's private uh, public private, was able to push around uh, the SEC, an executive branch agency, deserves a congressional hearing all, all by itself. Later, it became clear information would be disclosed. New York Fed legal group staffer James Bergen emailed colleagues saying, I have to think this train is probably going to leave the station soon, and we need to focus our efforts on explaining the story as best we can. There were too many people involved in deals, too many counterparties, too many lawyers and advisors, too many people from AIG to keep a determined Congress from the information. That's what the guy said. Think of the enormity of that statement. A staffer at a body with little public accountability and that exists to serve bankers is lamenting the inability to keep Congress in the dark. This belies the culture of secrecy obviously pervasive within the New York Fed. Committee Chairman Adolphus Towns noted during the hearing that the bank initially refused to disclose even the names of other banks that benefited from its actions, arguing this information would somehow harm AIG. Penchant for secrecy. In fact, when the information was finally re- released under pressure from Congress, nothing happened, Town said. It had absolutely no effect on AIG's business or financial condition, but it did have an effect on the credibility of the Federal Reserve, and it called into question the Fed's penchant for secrecy. Now, I'm not saying Congress should be meddling in interest rate decisions or micromanaging bank regulations, nor do I think we should all don tinfoil hats and start ranting about the Trilateral Commission. I don't see the connection. Yet when unelected accountable agencies pick banking winners, 
while trying to end-run Congress, even as taxpayers are forced to lend, spend, and corn and guarantee about $8 trillion to prop up the financial system, our collective blood should boil. But, you know, I, I, uh, I got to laugh at inquiries because they go nowhere. I've seen so many inquiries in my lifetime, uh, apart from spending on a lot of tax money, uh, they really don't go anywhere. Uh, the, they, they copied this system from Britain and the British Empire because they still have these inquiries going on today. Uh, endless inquiries. Some of them will take 10, 12 years, and by that time, um, everybody's forgotten what it was, uh, and nothing comes of it. it it's just a, it's just a farce. Right now, there's a, a, a one of these famous inquiries going on to do with who is to blame for getting the uh, Iraq invasion started. Well, everybody knows who's got a memory of what happened, but uh, they have an inquiry about it now. And it's so interesting, too, that David Kelly, who was one of the main witnesses there to testify, and he was, in the, he was part of the group for inspections and all that uh, in Iraq, they had no weapons of mass destruction. And, of course, he was, he was suicided uh, in a field. And um, the, autopsy, the second autopsy proved that uh, he did not commit suicide. And now that that's been, uh, that information has officially by the British government, um, been classified under the Official Secrets Act for 70 years. So we, we can't know what, what, what killed them for 70 years. And it happened just two days before Tony Blair was due to, to go up on the bench and give his part of the testimony as to what happened in the war. How fortunate for Tony. No wonder he's always smiling. This article here is from the Guardian. .co.uk, wanted Tony Blair for war crimes, arrest him and claim your reward. It says the only question that counts is the one that the Chilcot inquiry won't address was the war with Iraq illegal. If the answer is yes, everything changes. The war is no longer a political matter but a criminal one and those who commissioned it should be committed for trial for what the Nuremberg Tribunal called the supreme international crime, the crime of aggression. And then they go on and on and on and they prattle out their their their, um, their venom, naturally. Uh, but the inquiry will go nowhere. Uh, Tony's career is made for him. It was made for him before they made him prime minister. And they do like to look after their own. That's, so that's a, that's a given. There's another article about the same, the same uh, inquiry. From the Telegraph, it says, Iraq inquiry is being gagged after secret documents withheld. Crucial evidence about the reasons Britain went to war against Saddam Hussein is being kept secret. It has emerged, leading to accusations that the Iraq inquiry has been gagged. Well, why have it then? And that's 28th of January 2010. This is Chairman of the Iraq inquiry, Sir John Chilcott, and former British Attorney General Lord Goldsmith uh, ask, is, is the inquiry being gagged? If an apparent breach of the inquiry terms or in the apparent breach of inquiry terms, Sir John Chilcott, head of the probe, expressed his frustration that he was unable to refer to key documents while questioning Lord Goldsmith, the former Attorney General, about why he gave the green light for going ahead with the war. Lord Goldsmith also said that he was unhappy at being denied the opportunity to discuss documents, including a letter from Jack Straw, then former Foreign Secretary, about United Nations negotiations. 
Gordon Brown has pledged that the inquiry team will have access to all government papers, but the exchanges over Lord Goldsmith's testimony make clear that they will be barred from discussing classified documents during evidence sessions. Well, without that, you see, there is no evidence, and this point was having the inquiry, but they like everything to look good uh, for the books. So the future historians can always say, yep, they had an inquiry and found nothing, and, and that's really how it's done. <laughs> but then again, you know, as I say, Britain is a model state for political correctness and for Big Brother, Absolutely, that's why that's why 1984 was written in 1948 or published in 48 by Orwell because he knew then too that Britain was a flagship for this whole new world system. In fact, the whole UN agenda uh, is based on using Britain and the colonies, as they call the Commonwealth or the Empire, as the nucleus for creating it. The US was to take over and pay for it, mind you, and they have been uh, for an awful long time. Here's an article to show you how stupid it gets when you get all these laws and rules and regulations. And it's coming here. Uh, this article is from the Daily Record. Motorist receives a £50 pounds, uh, on-the-spot fine. And they, they fine you on the spot there. And you've got to pay up on the spot. That's just called extortion, isn't it? Highway robbery. When a guy with a gun stops you and says, Hey, you can't travel unless you pay me this. Well, that's exactly what... You've got to stop, look, stop and look and see what the actual events are. What are you seeing? Extortion is extortion. A heavy is a heavy. Whether you want to call them a policeman or not, it's a heavy. Some motorists receive £50 fine for blowing his nose in a stationary car. For, I'm not kidding you. This is how dumb it is here. Folk are petrified now to go outside. January the 28th, a businessman has been fined by cops for blowing his nose in a car. The father of two Michael Mancini pulled out a tissue while he was stuck in stationary traffic with his handbrake on. Over there, you've got to make sure you go by every single rule. You've got to have the handbrake on if you're driving a standard vehicle. And he had it on. So he wasn't going anywhere. He was stuck in traffic. All the traffic was stuck there. But he was given a £60 fixed penalty notice for not being in control of his vehicle. Because if you got a hand off, they blow his nose, eh? The cop who handed out the ticket was PC Stuart Gray, dubbed PC Shiny Buttons for his zealous approach to the job. He was exposed last year after he issued a £50 fixed penalty to a man, it's a pensioner, I read it on the time, at the time, who accidentally dropped a £10 note, some money, in the street from his pocket. When he was putting a receipt in it, he dropped his £10 note. So this prune, this idiot, Shiny Buttons here, uh, gave him a littering fine for dropping a £10 note. I, I think it was £50 fine for a £10 note. Last night, Michael, 39, who's never been in trouble with police, said, I was in total shock. I was stuck in traffic with a handbrake on, and my nose was running. It's beyond a disgrace. Well, it's, it's beyond ludicrous. And that's what I mean, you know, if you want to change a system, you've got to look at everything that's wrong with it, and generally it's, it's pretty well everything. <laughs> and you can't fix a system like that. I've said before, you, if you wanted to get back, or at least back just a, a time when police obeyed the citizenry and called you sir and all the rest of it and went through at least a, for, a formal set of rules when they negotiated with you on anything, you'd have to dis- disband the entire police forces of the US, Canada, Britain and elsewhere because we don't have policemen anymore. We don't have them. You have to fire the whole lot of them and start from scratch. And you would have to give them sensitivity courses in dealing with the public. 
And you've you got to stop putting out all these movies where they show the cops or the heroes as they smash through doors with flak jackets on and, and Darth Vader masks on and all that stuff and machine guns. That's got to go. Because this is hell. And people are terrified. And this is what you end up with. These pinhead bullies who've got authority to back them. That's got to be done away with altogether. Altogether. Now, <laughs> I know that special forces, now I, I, I've talked to different ones in special forces, and what they teach them is basic medicine, uh, in the field medicine, uh, and basic, very basic surgery, stuff like that. But uh, I know what they used to do was to put them into a, a field where sheep were, and they'd machine gun a whole bunch of the sheep with their, with their submachine guns, and then they'd have to go in and try and save the ones that weren't dead by extracting the bullets and doing what they call field dressings and that kind of stuff. That, that's how you also desensitize people from any semblance of normal behavior, as, as far as I'm concerned. But that's what they do with them. This article here is from The Telegraph. Live pigs blown up in government terrorism experiments. Live pigs are being blown up. Who hates pigs? What's wrong with the pig? It's quite a nice creature. Live pigs are being blown up as part of a series of government terrorism experiments at Porton Down, the government's secret military research laboratory. 24th of January. It says here, 18 pigs wrapped in protective Kevlar blankets were blasted in a bid to help scientists understand more about the effects of bomb blasts on victims. Do you, do you think they don't have enough victims by now? How long have we been blasting people to pieces? You, you ever think about it? I mean, there's people who read this and they'll probably take the plausible, well, you know, I guess they've got to do... Like, how long have we been blowing people to pieces? They have to do it with pigs. How many troops wear Kevlar and have got blown up over donkey's years? And a donkey's year is an awful long time. It says animals were placed less than three yards from an explosive. Before being blown up, tubes were inserted into their blood vessels and bladders, and their spleens were removed. Uh, uh. A wire was also put into a major abdominal blood vessel to ensure the, the vessel became lacerated, that's straight to pieces, in the explosion. The Kevlar blankets were used to protect the animals from minor bomb debris, and the animals were anesthetized throughout. Well, that's kinder, isn't it? Scientists wanted to find out how long the animals survived when more than a third of their blood had drained from their bodies. <laughs> oh, they've got a billion ways to spend the tax money, don't they? Medics hope the experiments will help British soldiers in Afghanistan as well as casualties of terror attacks like the July 2005 bombing of the London Underground and a double-decker bus. In particular, these results should help them understand how to control hemorrhaging and bomb blast victims. We had world wars and everything, you know. World wars and, oh, we've had everything you can imagine, but no, they're going to blow up pigs. Uh, jobs for the boys, you know, for the, I guess that's for the, the, the new scientists that are coming in. The relatives of the old ones, you know, they, they really breed all right. And they're going to find jobs for them and something to do. And I guess pork is cheap right now, too. Says, talking to the Sunday Times, he said, These are revolting and unnecessary experiments. Sadly, we are too familiar with the effects of terrorism. 
It's perfectly possible to find out things we don't know without blowing up pigs to find out. A spokeswoman, spokeswoman for Porton Downs, that's a public relations, that's your perception manager, the altered perception. And the professionals are trained in this. Said anecdotally, there was already evidence that the research was helping to save lives. Already evidence. It was helping to save lives. Maybe they stopped eating pork. She said, this work is part of our broad combat casualty care program. Anecdotally, we are seeing evidence of people surviving because of this work. Oh, dear. You know, they could rationalize anything. Anything at all. Also says at the very bottom, no pigs survived the experiments. Uh, it really does make you wonder, doesn't it? Now, the Club of Rome came out with its report recently. I'll put this up on my... Remember, all these articles I put up at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and the end of the show. So you go in there for the links and I'll take you to them. And this is about... This is um, the October... I think it was at the October meeting. I'll put this one up. Uh, I won't be putting it up. I've got a problem loading the page for some reason. I don't know what happened there. And I'll go on to something else instead. This article here is ah, another one, too. You know, it was debated a hundred years ago how long children should really stay in school. I think John Lennon sung in one of his songs that you go through school and expect you to make your mind up what you want to be for the rest of your lives before you're ten. And it's pretty well like that, isn't it? And then you've got parents fretting, oh, what are you, what are you going to be? What are you going to be? And here you are in this big... Strange world that's so exciting and, and massive and huge, and you're supposed to decide what you want to be for the rest of your life. And every year they keep up, upping the school leaving age to keep people from the unemployment list. That's the reason it's done. But it's also admitted from the teacher, the educational authorities, that it's also to give them more indoctrination on a higher level now that they're more mature. You can give them more social indoctrination, by the way. That's also why they keep them in school. And the music's coming in, and I'll read this when I come back from this break. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Reading an article here about school, really, and how they keep upping the school years. And there's always a plausible reason for things, then there's a truth. And as I say, that the, the plausible reason is that uh, they have to get a better integration for, for a more bewildering and, and complex world. The reality is that they want them off the, off the, the unemployment figures. They don't, they don't want them joining the queues. And at the same time, they want to use that time to give them a higher indoctrination in political correctness because they're more mature then. You learn differently when, you, when you're 18 or 19 than you do when you're 5 or 6. When you're five or six, you can get a, a very fast download. You don't question it too much from an authority figure. As you get older, you're a bit rebellious, so you have to put it over with more psychology, etc. And, and that's a fine art in itself. But uh, they're paying children now in some countries to stay in schools. Uh, this is from Telegraph. It says, £35 million paid to teenagers to attend school. Teenagers were paid soaring amounts of taxpayers' money. They stay on at school last year with more than £35 million handed out in total. That's January the 27th. 
uh, Scottish political editor Simon Johnson. About 39,000 pupils aged between 16 and 19 receive weekly payments and bonuses for good attendance under the controversial Education Maintenance Allowance Scheme. The total bill came to the public purse of £35.4 million in 2008 represented a 9% increase on the previous academic year and included £7.9 million in bonuses. So you got a bonus as well, eh? For good attendance. <laughs> and that's something. And that's something. But here you, here you go again with the children, because I love the children, you understand? And this article is from Mail Online. Normal children's toothpaste, you thought it was bad enough with the fluoride. It's not strong enough to prevent tooth decay, study finds. Uh, Daily Mail, 20th of January. Parents should use toothpaste with stronger concentrations of fluoride to prevent tooth decay in their children, a new report says. Researchers found that toothpaste that contained fluoride concentrations less than 1,000 parts per million were only as effective at preventing tooth decay as non-fluoride products. So it's all been a waste of time, they're trying to tell you, but it does affect your brain, but they won't mention that here. The study carried out by the Cochrane Oral Health Group, based at University of Manchester, has previously shown that fluoride toothpaste reduced dental decay by 24%. So they're back and forth like a ping-pong ball. Because that's not the point of it at all. After all, uh, if it's not enough in the toothpaste, you're drinking water all the time, and that's loaded with it too. They don't mention that here. The group's latest research, which involves 79 trials and 73,000 children worldwide, also suggested that brushing a child's teeth with a fluoride toothpaste before the age of 12 months could lead to an increased risk of developing mild fluorosis. That's where you get those little specks in your tooth. Then it, then it prattles on about more and more and why they've got it up the, the mountain level. So see, even though it's in all your water and your pop that you're drinking and guzzling down and all that stuff as well. So it, everything's a farce, really. But, you know, the U.S. is now changing the way it's, it cleans its water. And, and it's starting off with Washington, D.C. and uh, Virginia as well. And I've got a whole list of ingredients and stuff they're putting in the water there. And it's kind of terrifying when you look at it. And maybe next week I'll go into that and read it. Uh, amazing stuff what they're putting in the water nowadays. Well, from a, a 20 below zero Fahrenheit, uh, Ontario, Canada, from Hamish myself, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you.